Hey everyone, welcome to episode 255 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a photographer and filmmaker who lives in California but travels internationally to focus on projects of personal importance, Ashley Payne. I was fortunate to meet Ashley recently when I was photographing in Death Valley and she was recommended to us by former guest Taylor Stone. Ashley and I compare and contrast filmmaking with landscape photography, and we discuss tangible ways that photographers can make better photographs by thinking like a filmmaker. Before we dive into the show, I wanted to remind listeners of an incredible opportunity to join me and 50 plus other incredible photographers for a weekend of intense learning and community. Please join me at Out of Chicago Live on March 11th through the 13th, 2022. Out of Chicago Live is a unique learning and networking event where you can attend over 100 live sessions over Zoom, which will be recorded for your viewing convenience for a year. As far as I know, this is the only event of its kind where you can learn from the largest group of instructors ever assembled, hang out with landscape photographers from around the world, and be part of the Out of Chicago family. I'll be teaching two sessions at this year's event, and I hope to see you there. Learn more and register at outofchicago.com. Again, that's outofchicago.com. Okay, let's get to the show. Ashley Payne, welcome to the podcast. And might I say, you have a pretty decent last name. Oh, well, thank you, Matt. I'm what? Wait. Oh, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, we must be related somewhere down the line. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My wife was like, Yo, you're interviewing somebody who has the same last name as you. Are you guys related? And I was like, I don't know. Yeah, we won't. We, we don't know. We need to get on Ancestry.com. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. awesome. For So we had the, uh, the fun pleasure of meeting each other last month in Death Valley. So, so this is just kind of like a little reunion tour here. But for, for people who might not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I really enjoyed Death Valley. I'm really glad we got to meet in person because I've listened to your podcast for some time now with some awesome guests you've had on here, and it's been a joy. So I'm really lucky to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a documentary filmmaker. My name is Ashley Payne, and previously I was a photojournalist, which I still still am from time to time. I grew up wanting to be a war photographer from the age of far back as I can remember, probably five years old with a Polaroid Barbie camera and I was wearing camouflage all over me. What? But, yeah, I was bound and determined. I had no idea how the military worked. I had no idea that I had to go through boot camp or anything. And slowly as I learned through the years, things changed a little bit. <laughs> um, but that's what that was my dream. I wanted to go to the trenches and take photographs of, you know, what really, really mattered in in faraway places and um hmm. so i went off to pratt institute i went to art school to follow my dream to be a photographer and then i started working for newspapers wow okay so i feel like there has to be a story there about why you got so obsessed with war photography because when i was a kid growing up i grew up in Colorado springs near um the air force academy and mm -hmm. so we always had lots of, you know, fighter jets and stuff like that flying around. 
and I wanted to be a fighter jet pilot when I was growing up, right? So yeah, um, that obviously didn't happen. But I'm curious, <laughs> what was it that got you thinking you wanted to take pictures of people in war? There was not a specific moment that I can remember. I've been asked this question, obviously, because I... It's all I remember. If you see pictures of me as a kid, like I had a camouflage jacket with a bedazzled army written across the back. Like my grandma, my parents fully supported me on this mission. I mean, they gave me their AE1 Canon cameras. I was shooting film at the age of 10. And I, but I have no idea what, what it was about war photography. I really don't. I, I would call myself a little bit of an adrenaline junkie but you know, don't say it too loudly. And I think maybe I was attracted to that. I, I loved the, the idea of, of being somewhere really important, taking photographs of it and bringing it back to civilization because I felt like maybe we weren't seeing enough of it, which you, people obviously were, but as a kid, I didn't know that. You know, I was being shielded from it. And I was like, I, people are, what I, it was Iraq and it was Afghanistan. And I just knew that people were over there dying. I knew 9-11 happened and I wanted to photograph it. I wanted to be there for it. I, I can't tell you why specifically. I just was drawn to it. So did you have people in your family who were also photographers or? Not some more just as a hobby. My grandpa mm -hmm. and my mom both had um, film cameras and they both passed them on to me, which I was really lucky for that. And my grandpa went to was in the Vietnam War, and uh, he gave me his dog tags, and so I would wear them. <laughs> and uh, no, but no one was actually a photographer per se. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, so one thing I think was maybe missing is uh, where do you live, and uh, oh, yeah. do you do this full time? And also married, kids, not married. Um, How's it? What's the situation there? All the personal stuff. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm so, yeah, I was born in Louisiana, raised in Texas. I'm a Southern girl and now I live in California, technically, although I wouldn't say it's by choice. No, I love California. If I was going to live anywhere in the States, it would be California. That's why I'm here. But COVID brought me here. And uh, I am married and I don't have any children, but I am happily married. My husband and I have been together since we were kids. And we're going on 13 years, so nice. very happily married, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I feel like that that particular topic is going to make a resurgence later in the podcast. <laughs> Maybe, um, yeah. However, let's just go ahead and dive right into the nitty-gritty um, because I think your main focus is on filmmaking, which is a mm -hmm. you know somewhat of a detraction from this podcast. However, I think that filmmaking and landscape photography have a lot in common. So tell us about how you got into filmmaking specifically. Film, okay. So when you do photography, I hope I I feel like people listening may be able to relate to this. I, I hope so. At least at least a couple. When you do photography for so long, you definitely burn out and you get stumps in the road and you are like, what in the world am I supposed to be taking pictures of? And so imagine starting as little as I did, and I started with rose bushes, you know, and then I grew into going to art school and going to crit every week and then getting totally just torn apart for like <laughs> photo series ideas. I mean, tears, you know, like, and you're scared to death to tell your professor, what do you want to do for your thesis? Cause art is just was being destroyed for me. So photo photography was, it really was honestly. And, um, it's taken me a long time to realize that 
And so when I got out and I started working in for newspapers as a photojournalist, as a freelancer, I, I really was missing a connection that I used to feel. And my husband and I decided to take a year off. He was in the military and then he got out. We took a year off to travel and spend all of our savings living a dream. And so we did. And along the way, I realized that I needed to push the photograph further and I wanted to push it into moving picture and, and interviews and talking to people and understanding stories like so deep that it's almost disturbing, but it's so addicting and wonderful and emotional because you can really like feel how people respond to things, you know, when in a video, it's, it's definitely different. And yeah, I, I fell in love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when I first learned about you and your work, one of the things I was immediately impressed by was the fact that your films are uh, of subjects that are of personal importance to you that, um, you know, tell a story about something that you feel very passionately about. And I think oftentimes as landscape photographers, that's something that we strive to do through our photography, but it's not as readily accessible, right? Because there's a disconnect between the two-dimensional image and the story, which mm. there's some pros and cons to that. But in your mind, what are the differences and similarities between landscape photography and filmmaking? Uh, man. Um, well, have you ever... Have you ever had the idea to just switch the button to record when you're taking a photo <laughs> of a waterfall or a stream or the wind moving sand? I have, you know, I, um, let's see, in 2020, as a fun experiment, I decided that I was going to vlog. <laughs> <laughs> and so the very first vlog trip that I did, um, it was a backpacking trip I did with my son up into the wilderness here near my home. Mm -hmm. And there's, it was like early summer. So there's lots of snowmelt and little streams and lots of tiny wildflowers coming up and stuff and water, wild uh, waterfalls. And I created like, I don't know, 20 video clips or something like that. And I threw it all together into a vlog and started posting on YouTube. And that lasted yeah. about four, four months until I decided it was too much work. I would actually love to do that more, but it's what I've found about video is that it's just such a massive time investment. Gosh, yes, it is. It is. Like I have a full-time filmmaker and I have to be because there's no time for anything else. <laughs> right. You don't even sleep, I'm sure. Like No, I mean really, like, truly. And this is my my first project coming up where I actually have someone else producing it with me. So someone else helping me out. And let me tell you, I don't think I'm ever going to go back to being a one woman show because you got to have help in, in this, in these projects and these big ideas. And I, I, Hey, vlogging, don't be ashamed of that. We've all, we've all been there. I feel like it in some way or another, we've all picked up our phones at least and like recorded a weekend with our friends or something. And I've, I've vlogged and it was eye opening because you start to see yourself in a different light, which also can reflect on your art and how you, how you attack it, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about that because, uh, what I found through vlogging is that and this is maybe a unique problem to landscape photography, but I found it really difficult to focus on one or the other, or I'm sorry, to focus on both of them. I felt like, okay, I'm going to make a really cool video right now, but I can't 
think about making a really interesting photograph at the same time. Like, I don't know, like I, I found it really difficult to do both of them, um, yes. which is why I didn't do a great job. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what has your experience been? No, time management of those two things. I, I was hired by a nonprofit to make a tracing thought video, which is my company in Bangladesh. And they wanted me to do a photo series on the project and also a Tracing Thought documentary. And I was so excited. I mean, first of all, I was just like, yes, because I was already in Nepal and I just had to jump over there. But then second thought was, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm on a 10-day you know, time period. And so I allotted certain days where I had to like – I might as well have super glued my camera button to photo only. And then if I could take the super glue off, because that's how strict I was being on myself where today I can only take photographs. I was like, even if something is urging me so badly to make a video or like to shoot an interview, I have to schedule it for the next day. Otherwise, you're so moving back and forth too much. You're lost. And especially when you don't have anyone else, an assistant or a second cameraman, that, that is just impossible. It is. It really is. And uh, well, vlogging, I definitely did it more out of enjoyment in a project with my husband that we just like hooked on to together. So it was a personal thing, but it made me realize other things, you know, about my art and it let me step away from serious photojournalism. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's, um, it forced me to kind of try to tell the story of what I was trying to convey through my photographs via me talking and how I compose the video and things like that. I think what I've found is it's really, it was, it's become really hard for me to become motivated to focus on it because I know that it's just going to sit on my hard drive, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. I seriously, that that year, I I probably have fifteen to twenty more vlogs that I've just never edited because I just it's a time commitment that I just I, haven't put the energy into. I've heard that on too many YouTube videos. Not that I I won't watch them all the time, but when I watch my you know my favorites, they're always like, "Oh, guys, I'm so behind." But you know, we don't <laughs> see that as the viewers, and I learn that too. Uploading vlogs to YouTube. We, we just need to learn to be quiet because otherwise people don't know that's on your hard drive. People don't know what they're not seeing, you know? That's and true. If you got it out today, I'm sure people would be like, oh, Matt, that's awesome. Like, You're probably did you do right. that last week? <laughs> right, except for yeah. being like, how come there's wildflowers and isn't it February or whatever? That, yeah, <laughs> well, the weather definitely planning would have to happen there, but yeah. No, but it's fine. I mean, you're right, it's... All of those restraints that we put on ourselves are so artificial and silly, but um, it's the process, for me, right? yeah. It, so, I mean, back to the original question though, I'm curious, like, cause you do both and I, I would love to, for you to hear you talk about what, what makes filmmaking different than landscape photography and what makes them similar. Well, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a landscape photographer, but you know, I take more pictures of people. But if I was going to pick similarities between, that's so, that's, oof, which alley do I want to go down? Oh, man. <laughs> um, for landscape photography and filmmaking, I mean, have you ever watched The Revenant or I could listen yes. to more movies? It, that is landscape photography, you know? It's yes. just moving and it's cinematic and it is absolutely incredible it's one of my favorite movies so i will same yeah and also, if you haven't seen it you gotta go see it now yeah and also like i feel like 
The Revenant is one of the best movies to watch as a landscape photographer because you're like, oh, look how they composed that scene. You know, it's oh yeah, it is it is a very uh, approachable film from a landscape photography perspective. Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, right? So yeah. sim- similarities, they're all over the place. Differences, obviously, filmmaking captures sound. Your audio changes everything about your senses and bad sound is it distracts you from everything, you know, so filmmaking sounds number one. And when you perfect that sound, it'll change everything. It'll change your mood. I, I mean, we go to sleep. Some A lot of people go to sleep to waterfall sounds and such. I'm sure nature photographers definitely do and landscape photographers. <laughs> Absolutely. Because- yeah, so they're all connected, right? Definitely. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I, f- I feel like for <clears throat> the similarities thing, you know, we talked about photography being more two-dimensional and video having the audio component. I think mm-hmm. the similarity is that, and this is going to sound somewhat cliche, but I think <laughs> with some intention, there can be some storytelling with your with photography, you know, like even in landscapes, it's, it's not always about the the epic grand scenic view. Like, you know, we were both just in Death Valley and I don't know about you, but I came back from that trip and I was nerding out with people like, you have to see the geology of this place. Like, yeah. you know, like, and I was trying to tell people about how different parts of the park form and how it's like, there's a fault line and, you know, the, the, the ground went down and all the mountains went up and then you have this super flat area and all the water collects and it has all this salt and, and the sun evaporates the salt and it creates all this interesting patterns. And for me, like those are the stories that we can tell through our photography, right? Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I was out there and I was out there for a different reason. I didn't really get to play around and film as, you know, just for enjoyment and for the beauty of the nature so much this time, but I want to go back because it can be, oh, just nature's wildest dreams out there. And to document it via film, watching people walk on these salt flats and just hearing the crackling, you know, of the salt. And it, it's a, it's an experience, especially children. Like you remember those moments and you don't forget them. Yeah, man, I'm feeling like we need to do a collaboration where, you follow me around and you video me being a total nerd in nature. <laughs> Easily. And then I'm, I'm like on my on my stomach like, oh, Matt, back up, back up. <laughs> right. right. Oh, yep. the sound isn't right. We got to do it again. <laughs> again, cut. <laughs> That's it. That would be awesome. Yeah. Hey, we've already done a lot of collaborations, right? Exactly. Family-wise. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't yeah. even have to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so earlier you earlier you referenced um, Nepal, and I was curious a lot about Nepal because that's a place that I think a lot of landscape photographers are super interested in. So, tell us about your time in Nepal and uh, what were you doing there, and what happened when COVID hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a lot of my time in Nepal was actually looking at the walls of an Airbnb, but it didn't start that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out there to do a story. I was working with the uh, the main team that takes National Geographic climbers up on Everest. And they were about to go put up and check on a weather machine, a very advanced new weather machine on Everest that was going to change the game for climbers, like to be mm. able to predict, you know, and 
map out new routes and everything. It was really exciting. And uh, so I'm hearing about this and reading about it. And I got in contact with the guys who were putting together the mission. And I wanted to make a documentary not about the mission per se and not about the National Geographic climbers that are coming in from America and Europe and Switzerland and such, but more so the Sherpas that follow them, Mm. which have gotten a lot of light these past couple of years, which is awesome because they are the reason people make it up that mountain. A lot of people, not everyone, some people. Like 80%? I would say more, yeah, 90% maybe, but there's some awesome, awesome, awesome climbers out there and I will not take away from what they do. But the Sherpas pay a big price and they they are incredible people. And I wanted to go make a documentary about how they feel, because this is what I do. This is the type of documentaries I make, is I talk to the people, the natives in areas, very specifically about how mostly, most of the time it's modern changes or um, different things from corporations coming in and palm oil and um, gold mining. And like this is more recreational with climbing but I wanted to learn about how they feel. So that's the perspective I always take. And I am never telling my documentaries through my point of view. I'm never going in with a narrative or a point or a bias notion that I am trying to prove ever. I try to stay as flat and unbiased as I possibly humanly can. And I hear what they have to say and the story develops as I go. So I kind of never know how it's going to turn out. And it's really fun. <laughs> and um, I get to ride along for some wild adventures because I really just go for the flow, go with the flow. And so I was with the Sherpas and I was talking to them. And they were incredible men. Um, we took some photographs and they were inviting me to their houses because COVID was coming. And we heard it. We're hearing about COVID, America shutting down. I had just flown in from Bangladesh and Bangladesh had already shut down. And I was trying to get to Nepal and film this documentary and then get back home. I didn't really have a home at the time, but my husband was in America. So I was trying to get back to America. And I'm in their house and I'm eating momos and I'm trying to get their interviews done. But they're telling me like they're, they don't speak English, uh, most of them. And I was, I was having trouble getting a translator. Oh, I got nuts. And they were all leaving. They were leaving to go to their villages to, to see their families because they were like, well, there's this big disease coming and we need to get out of the city. And I totally understood. So I want to go back and finish this documentary so badly. They, <laughs> they went up and did the weather machine, everything on a very, very, uh, really cool <laughs> private um, climb during COVID. Anyways, I want to go back and um, tell this story, but obviously I didn't get to finish it. They helped me out and got me on the back of their motorbike and dropped me off at my Airbnb. And they all went up to their villages and went to their families and stayed safe. And then I waited too long to get on a flight <laughs> because I really pushed it and I really wanted these this documentary to be filmed. And so it was too late, airport shut down, and my family is so mad at me. Oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> like I I turned off, it was my birthday too, and I turned off my phone and I was like, crap, I'm, I don't know what is going on. I was really not interested in COVID. I was like, this is silly. And at the time, you know, because I, I was right. naive and I was just- No, I remember. That's annoyed, how everyone you know? felt back in, what was it, March? March, yeah. Yeah. And we're almost everyone was like, what is going on? Come on. Right. I'm like, I'm about to give up everything and fly home. I haven't been back to America in three years or something like that. And I was like, I'm about to fly back home 
just because of COVID, this, or what was it called at the time, a corona, and oh man, so I didn't go. I didn't get on a plane because I thought it was going to be done in a week, and then I thought it was going to be done in two weeks, and then the embassy is now evacuating us and telling us if we don't get out now, we're going to be stuck there for who knows how long, and so I ended up editing two documentaries <laughs> in that Airbnb <laughs> from my past trips because I had so much time on my hand. I ordered a pizza for my birthday and hung out for three weeks. And then finally, the embassy, I got on a flight out and like six flights later, I was the only person in every single airport. I made it all the way back to California. Wow. And I've been here, basically been here since. You know, it's interesting about the the topic that you chose is that I feel like every single person you probably talked to had a split view about kind of the pros and cons of tourism and its impact, both positive and negative, mm-hmm. on Nepal and the people. Um, did you come away with any themes from that experience in terms of kind of what the locals uh, felt about the commercialization of climbing in Nepal? Man, I wish I could tell you, but I haven't gotten those interviews translated. (laughs) Because I'm not, I can't, I work completely out of donations and I moved on to my next documentary and I'm not going to pay to have those interviews translated until I get back on that film. So I have no idea what the guys are saying still. (laughs) All right. So so what you're trying to say is you need some support Uh, to get to the root of the answer of that question. Yes, I want to go back. If y'all want to see me finish this documentary, I'm ready and they're ready and uh, I'll be happy to go do it. That's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) So maybe that's a good um, segue to to talk a little bit about the the nuts and bolts and the, the business side of filmmaking because I think, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about you know, the monetization of and the business side of photography. And I'm guessing there's some overlap in terms of how filmmakers make a living. But I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about kind of what the reality is for someone like you who's a freelancer um, and someone who may or may not be getting, you know, projects just thrown your way left and right, like where you you have a passion project, but you need to fund it. So tell us a little bit about how you how you find a way to to make these projects a reality? Yeah, that's a really good question because I also have to be clear that I make my decisions on money not based on I can't be biased, right? Like I mentioned, I can't get paid to make a documentary by someone who's totally contradicting the mission or what, and people don't really like to hear that they want to give me money or support something, especially businesses in my case, that they don't know what the outcome is going to be. And the outcome could not be in their favor. So, right. Like here's a film documentary on palm oil sponsored by Oreos. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Probably not going to (laughs) fly. Not going to fly. No. You know, they would, you know, most people say, I need you to go and I need to make it a documentary about this. And I want, I want it to portray this. Well, that's not how I work. I let the people tell their story. And so I mostly work with nonprofits. Now, nonprofits don't have money coming out of their ears to give away to people. Of course, they're, they're, you know, not for profit organizations. So it is difficult to say the least. Um, I definitely don't do it for the money and I absolutely love what I do. So it doesn't matter. It is 
my dream come true. I've finally gotten all the pieces to the puzzle figured out and I, I really enjoy it. So I have a Patreon where people can support and donate to me, you know, independent people. And some people feel really passionate about a documentary I'm going to go film. They'll contact me and they'll say, hey, Ashley, I want to give you a little more for this one because it's it's connected to my heart and I want to see this through. And I work with that person. I definitely like to keep really close contact with people who do donate, you know, more than just $2. But the $2 people I also <laughs> chat up with all the time because $2 can get you far sometimes. Yeah. And uh, you just take what you get as it comes along. But it's most important to me that the documentaries stay true. So in post-production is where I'm building a family right now. And uh, in, um, oh, I blinked on the word. And um, oh my gosh, what's it called when you're trying to get your documentary out there? To produce it, distribute it? Distribute. Oh my gosh, thank you. The word just like couldn't come to my brain. You're good, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so distributing the documentary is where the money can also come from and that's kind of where I'm going right now in exploring. So so in the film world, what does the distribution look like? Because in in photography, it's, you know, your options are pretty limited. You know, you have magazines, you have e-magazines, um, you know, <laughs> you have occasionally people are lucky enough to get into galleries or museums. That's pretty rare. Um, but filmmaking is a whole other beast. So like, what does distribution look like for you? Uh, well, YouTube is number one. Vimeo is number two, you know, but those are just views and those are kind of word of mouth things. Those are not money makers per sure. se, unless you have a lot of followers and subscribers. Right. But then Waterbear is a documentary platform. If you've never heard of it, it's pretty awesome. And there's a lot more like Waterbear coming out that are like Netflix, but more based on documentaries are becoming a thing, you know, and I am so happy for that. Like they are getting a lot of spotlight right now and people are really enjoying them and learning how to learn from them and not just think of David Attenborough and, <laughs> you know, cheetahs running to take down buffaloes like it's it's a becoming a bigger platform so there, there are a lot of platforms out there but getting your documentary on one of them is very hard and also getting any money out of it is a whole nother battle to win it's not easy matt <laughs> it's not easy at all <laughs> i assumed it wasn't which is why yeah I <laughs> no i know and it's like oh man there's no easy way to say it netflix is the big kahuna and that's the dream you know Right. Or, you know, I mean, this isn't necessarily film, but, you know, National Geographic is kind of that sweet spot for photographers who want to tell like a compelling story about a place or people. Um, I feel like, you know, like you said, maybe Netflix or YouTube or, you know, distribution channels like that might be the sweet spot for filmmaking. Yes. Yeah. Or Amazon Prime. You know, there's there's more coming out. HBO. They'll take on right. some, but you have to hire people to talk to those people. And that costs money because you can't just walk up to Netflix or Amazon Prime and say, hey, I got a documentary. They don't even have – a couple of them have forms to fill out. But you have to have a manager. You have to have representation to know someone to know someone. And that costs money. It all costs money. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, we could we can get <clears throat> down in the, in the dumps about all of that kind of stuff. but Of course. Let's focus on the positives. So love that. Yep. <laughs> um, one of the things I was really impressed with uh, was the work that you've done in Indonesia. Um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the work you've done there, 
what was the project um, that you did? What was the impetus behind it? And uh, what do you hope that it will it will accomplish? <sighs> Indonesia was was a a really big was it is a very big part of my life. I, I lived in Indonesia for a year in and out of Bali and came across the island of Borneo. If <laughs> I hope people listening have been to Borneo, but I have to. Have you ever been to Borneo? Have you been to Indonesia? Nope. I've been to Ireland. <laughs> oh, hey. That's something um, to brag about. But no, I know I know about Borneo. I mean, isn't that isn't that where the orangutans are? Yes. That is the first thing that comes to people's mind when you th- say Borneo. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'm a just quick contextual thing. I'm a vegetarian um and, you know, I feel I believe very strongly in trying to reduce people's dependence on eating meat because mm-hmm. that's the primary driver in a lot of these third world countries to, you know, cut down the rainforests uh, for production of agricultural needs and things like that. So I'm a big fan of animals. So. Yeah. Hey, and rainforests, right? I mean, we need them. Absolutely. And I yeah, got biodiversity. Yeah. Also, you know, helps with uh, carbon uh, intakes. Yep. Yeah. And if we're uh, tearing them all down to mono monoculture farm, you know, one palm plant, the Ulysses Guinnesses, which is what I learned when I went to Borneo, that produces palm oil, and all these corporations come in, and this one palm plant. So palm oil, if you don't know, is in like almost all of our food. You know, for anyone listening that isn't familiar, it's in Oreos, it's in like our hair products, it's in everything. It's it's often called vegetable oil or canola oil. So you have to like really do a lot of digging to avoid it and it's very difficult and people often laugh at me or give me a hard time because I try really, really hard to avoid it. And it's difficult. <laughs> it's Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible. <laughs> it really is, yeah. And uh, when I went to Borneo, I realized that what this oil is, where it comes from, and what's happening for us around the world to be able to produce it and put it in our food and consumer products. And this one palm tree will take all of the water that's anywhere near it. I don't remember exactly for how you know far away for its roots, but I mean, it is far. It, it was like 10 meters or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it was really far. And um, they're monoculture farming, you know, Ulysses, Guinnesses, all across Borneo. And these corporations are coming in and they're paying people. Now, these villagers, these indigenous communities, the Dayak people, are still living completely off the land. They are bathing in streams, bathing in their rivers, washing their faces and drinking, you know, all from the same water source. And they're also eating off the land. They're foraging for food. They're building their homes. They're, they're still doing these things. There's not a lot of people left in the world doing these things, you know? And then these companies come in and say, well, if you gave us your land, or maybe if they just took their land, we will give you thousands of dollars. We'll give you $2,000. Now, $2,000 is a lot of money for people who are <laughs> still eating off of trees, you know? And it, it blows their mind away. They can get a motorbike. They can go into the city. They can have a house. These things that they see on their phones and on the TVs, they can have, you know, for $2,000 in Indonesia. 
at least you can buy it outright and have it and then give it to your children and you look into the future and it's dream come true. It's a Hollywood moment. So obviously people give up their lands and they give up the things they cherish most so quickly to these companies. And then they realize later down the line, wow, we have no land left. Our rainforests are gone. Our our animals are gone. We can no longer tell if rain is coming by the sounds that the birds are making because the birds have migrated somewhere else because the entire ecosystem is corrupt and destroyed. And I realized all that when I went to Borneo and it hit right in my heart. I mean, so, so deep. And I knew I had to tell this story and the younger generation is really regretting the decisions their parents made, which to no fault of their own, they saw a better future for their children, but their children are saying, no, we want to hold on to our traditions. We want to hold on to these beautiful memories and things that we grew up with. So, and how do you get it back, right? There's the Chinese companies that have come in. They're stealing people's land. Even if they don't give it up, they'll come to your door. They'll threaten you. Killings are going on, murders, and the police are being paid off. It is, it's really wild. And I, I knew I had to tell that story. So that is my, uh, I want to go back and make a bigger documentary. I have a short documentary on it, Palm Oil's Vice Grips on Natives, Vice Grips, Vice Grip on Natives. (laughs) And uh, I have two other documentaries, A Day in the Life of an Illegal Gold Miner I Made While I Was in Borneo and Corrupt Natural Resources. I had so much information. I stayed for four months, which is what I do. I stay for long periods of time with these communities. I learn from them. I forge food. I bathe in the rivers. I live with them completely and try to put myself in their shoes as much as humanly possible. And then I record their raw emotions of how they feel the world is changing around them. And what's interesting about that is I feel like any one of us, if we were in in that situation, we probably would make the same decisions, right? Because of the economic realities of our lives and... um, you know, here's a golden bullet to solve all of the problems I have in life. And oh, by the way, you have to give up this rainforest. And it's like, yeah, okay, no problem. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so easy to make those kinds of decisions when you face economic scarcity. Yeah. And which is, which is the same, I hate to say this, but it's the same decision making that we see from people who are um, super obsessed with NFTs and things like that. Like, they're willing to sacrifice whatever to make a living. And I totally understand why people would do that. You know, like if you're facing economic scarcity, it doesn't really matter what the cost is, right? And when it feels like the whole world is doing it, why are you going to stay behind and fight this fight in the middle of nowhere when, you know, everything is modernizing behind you. That's how they feel, you know, a, a totally. lot of those people. Yeah, it's like, I well, I want to I wanna have a house. I want to have a motorbike. I want to be able to eat out and not go forage for food. Like, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to carry all of my dishes and clothes down to the river and spend five hours bathing them. Like, my back hurts. I'm tired. Like, there's another way of life I could live. <sighs> and then you go live it. So I'm over here as an American And obviously we see such beauty. A lot of us do go and visit that like I did and see like, oh my God, this is amazing. I mean, my husband was like, are you ever coming home, Ashley? I'm a little concerned. You're (laughs) like, nope, sorry. (laughs) I didn't have internet. So when I did go to a cafe and I contacted him, I was like, I might be here for another month. (laughs) And I had, it was my dream, but 
what happened to me that made it a harsh reality was well, I, I broke my toe and then I, I broke it again because I, I wanted to keep filming. And then I was a little weak. You know, I was falling off logs and stuff over walking through the rainforest and the villagers were laughing at me. And I was just like rumors were going on like, oh, Ashley's falling off another log. I was such a klutz. I broke a lens, fell down a, a stream, you know, I mean, and then I got I got poisoned from the water because I was bathing in the streams, drinking from the streams and everything. And I just fully, like I said, put myself in their shoes. Well, I, I don't have their their strength. I wasn't – my body wasn't born to fight those germs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you developed that immunity over a long period of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. I'm all good. I just jumped right in. I, you know, don't want to bring plastic into the situation, so I'm not going to buy the water bottles. And I got blood poisoning, and then I got really, really sick, and that's – but that forced me to leave. And also I may have caused a little bit too much problems in, um, with the police in one village for filming illegal gold mining operations that, and th- they wanted to be gone. It got a little scary. So I had to leave oh, pretty wow. quickly. Yeah. Be, because they're going to do anything for their money. They're going to do anything to, to keep the systems rolling. Well, that's, um, I want to go a little bit deeper into the filmmaking side of things. I'm curious, yeah. like from your perspective, what are some of the keys to making compelling films, in your opinion? And and what have you learned that's improved your filmmaking processes? Um, like I mentioned, for me personally, this is so different for every filmmaker, but I need totally. to... I'm not so much as a researcher through the computer gal. Like, I need to be there. I need to see it. And I need to, like, touch it, you know, and feel it. Tangible things. I experience it put my camera away for a couple of weeks and really get involved. And that's what turns my films into like pushes past the, just the first layer. And then I can get to the next layer, next layer. And I find really what story I want to tell, not just the surface level story. And that's why the subheading of, or the um, tagline of my company is a deeper understanding, which can be cliche when you just hear it because people use that phrase a lot. But it is so much deeper. At least that's all I do is try to get deeper and deeper into people's emotions and feelings. And that's what compels me to make a stronger documentary, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm curious, with that being said, how, how do you think photographers can do the same thing through their work? I mean, I know you've talked about like you don't consider yourself as a landscape photographer, but if you were to just totally switch careers today and become a full-time nature and landscape photographer mm. with the knowledge and experience that you have as a filmmaker, what would you bring to the table in terms of um, making work that might be different or unique or powerful? Okay. If I was totally going to switch gears and I was said, Hey, I need to put together a gallery show because someone wants me to do landscape f- photographs. I would immediately take my camera, leave my phone and walk into the most faraway land of nature that I possibly could with no one around me. Naked if I could. <laughs> Just me, a knife. I would do that island routine where it's like, what's the three things you would bring to a stranded island? And then my camera. And I'd probably actually go to an island because I, I like the water and I like tropical areas. And I would sit with it for a long period of time, just like I do with my documentaries and people. And I would find a new way to look at it because I need that time. I need that process. I need the, the chance to talk to nature, just like I talk to people, 
sit with it, like feel really cold from it, be miserable with it, you know, like seriously miserable and then seriously happy, like both ends of the spectrum. And then I could think I can see the world a different way through my camera once those, once I've pushed past those, those boundaries. I love that answer. I mean, that's one of the things I love about backpacking. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot of backpacking up into the, the mountains here in Colorado and you know, sometimes the weather can get pretty nasty. It's cold, you're wet, you know, you know, maybe the meal you're eating isn't the best. Yeah. And maybe you hiked like 12, 15 miles that day. But man, like having that that close of a connection to the realities of being miserable is actually sometimes I feel like can produce some really interesting photography. Yeah, it, it humbles it humbles you, right? Makes you realize Absolutely. The houses we live in and the things we have are so incredible and advanced. And if you just be brought back down to nature and let it beat you up a little bit, you might want to fight back with your camera, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's, I mean, I feel like that little sign bit right there, people listen to that, they're going to get something out of this episode because that's that's golden. Yeah, I I Agree. I've never, I'm glad you asked the question because I guess I never really would have thought of it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's interesting because you, that's the natural kind of tendency or approach that you've taken with your filmmaking. But Mm -hmm. I bet for a lot of photographers, they haven't necessarily thought about it from that particular perspective. So like breaking it down to that simplistic of an idea might help people realize that you know, spending a bunch of money on gear or tutorials or, you know, paying for workshops or whatever, like maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer is like, get yourself out there into nature, find some misery, connect with the earth, and then tell a story about your experience. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't go as far as having like a Wilson moment, but, (laughs) you know, as close as you can get and... (laughs) And it might really change things. Yeah. Right. Like we want you to safely come home and tell right, the story. Right. <laughs> right. No FedEx involved. But I don't know. I kind of want to go do this now. I'm like, well, shit, I want to go on a boat. And <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Borneo. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about this podcast is probably every couple of months I'll have someone on the on the podcast who travels a lot and gets to interact with you know people that aren't you know necessarily people you would run into on a day-to-day basis and mm. and what I found is that the people that we interact with when we're in our travels can be super influential and inspire us so I'm curious about your experience about being with the people of Borneo and how they've inspired you to make two more films. Yeah, I well, I this was the beginning of my relationship with working with nonprofits and I was hired by a nonprofit to go to Borneo with the owner and make a film on his behalf and a really wonderful nonprofit that works with rebuilding the forests. And that's when I discovered palm oil and I was introduced to a family specifically that we were staying with. And I was also with another group of people, I'm going to be brutally honest, was there, if you ask me, not for the, I don't want to like completely say they were there for the wrong reasons, but they weren't there to, with the people, with the community's heart and um, 
ideas in mind. It wasn't their forefront. You know, they were there to take photographs and they were there to see the sites and stuff and they didn't really put themselves in the people's shoes. And I was there with this group and I saw this and it really was, uh, you know, putting a little tick on me. It was really driving me nuts. And I was talking with the sister and the family who spoke really good English and we were communicating about it. And I was like, you really need to be getting paid more. If you were, if they were in any other country, you would be getting paid. Oh my gosh. I don't even want to tell y'all like how dramatic that they were ripping these people off, but it was, it was bad if you ask me. And I was telling her this and I was telling the family that I was like, y'all are doing so much work. I mean, they were fully putting together tours and stuff for this group of photographers and everything. And I put a really bad taste in my mouth. And I decided sometimes you just have to say it, you know, you have to step up. And I went back to my home in Bali after doing that for a month. I was there for a couple of weeks, actually went back to my home in Bali, continued talking with the family. And I was like, helping them figure it out, helping them approach the situation differently. If, if other Westerners came and said, hey, can you do a tour for us and stuff? And I was helping them. And then I went back to see them. And this is when I really fell in love with the palm oil story and, and interested in it. And I stayed with the family and I, the, the rest is history. This family and I, well, they're my family now. I stayed for many months. As I've explained, I did multiple documentaries. I they, we were always meant to meet each other. I really do believe that. And it's a beautiful thing that I have them. They adopted me into their family, like with a whole tribal ceremony and they surprised me with it. I was just like walking out of the house one day and I was teaching the youngest boy how to fly the drone. And uh, we would go out when it wasn't raining. And, and then Desi walks out, which is my sister. And she was like, we have to go buy chickens. I was like, well, why, why are we buying chickens today? You know, what's up? And she goes, for your ceremony. I mean, I was like, what ceremony? And she was like, for your adoption ceremony. And then she just looks at me and she knew she was playing me. I never forget her face. And I looked at her, what are you talking about? And she was like, mom and dad decided they want you to be their daughter. And I was just, <laughs> oh my God, can you imagine? I was floored. I freaked. And they, she sat down and we we cried. She was like just telling me why and everything. And then we went and bought three chickens, live chickens in these crates down in the town. And then we came back and yeah, we beheaded those chickens, drink <laughs> chicken blood, did all kinds of stuff. It was really, really, really cool. The whole village came. The ceremony lasted like four hours and the yeah, it, they're mine forever. I hope to go back very soon. I would have been back already by now if COVID hadn't happened to make a longer documentary, a bigger documentary. So if y'all want to see that, please let me know. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I'm kind of envious because those are the kinds of stories that I think are so interesting to tell. And, you know, the the medium of photography and, and, and also video, obviously, are so great at telling those kinds of stories. And uh, I'm just excited to see what you do with your, with your work. Thank you. Thank you. It, it proved to me as a person that was so life-changing for me to step up and say something when you saw that it was wrong and it feels bad. I, I just really want to drive that home because we should do that more as I learned that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm always an angel and I'm always like standing up for what is right because it's hard to do sometimes and it puts you in a really sticky situation, even like talking about it, you know, on a podcast, I'm like, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> right, like, hope those people don't listen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even if they do, they need to, you know, maybe change their ways a little bit. And it's important for us to communicate to people. And I explained it to them too. I, anyways, 
it, it matters and it can change things for a lot of people in the world. Right. Well, I mean, not to be, belabor the point, but I mean, Western societies, we we specialize in taking advantage of other parts of the world that are desperate for economic sustainability. Exactly. That's what Borneo has become is like this grabbing ground where everyone can just come in and grab. And it's important for us to fight on behalf of the people still living there. I agree. All right. So you've talked a lot. Well, not a lot, but you've talked a little bit about the fact that you're married and how you've spent like countless numbers of days and months away from your family. You know, just thinking about my own experience as a married person, I'd be really curious to hear you talk about (laughs) what some of the keys are to keeping your marriage intact while you're away from home from home so long. Because honestly, I think a lot of um, photographers who are full time, they experience this and My experience has been a lot of those people don't stay married for very long because it's so difficult. Um, And then a lot of people purposely just stay single because like that's just, it's just not a reality that they can fathom. So I'm curious what secrets or knowledge or wisdom you can impart in order to help others find some of that success. Oh, Matt, are you trying to get me to blab about my husband on the podcast? (laughs) It's a bad secret. He's going to listen to this and he's going to be like... (laughs) 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 Oh, I don't know if I have any secrets, but I mean, I definitely do. Well, honestly, we've been together since we were 15. We have a very unique story that I have no answers for. It was very strange. We just met on a beach in Texas when we were 15. My mom was there and um, we, our friends knew, everyone knew. He lived in Louisiana. I lived in Texas. We've been long distance since the moment we started dating. So that has a lot to do with it. A lot. Yeah. He, we saw each other very rarely until one of us got a car heated and then his car broke down halfway between the two states more than once. We're always pushing it over to the side of the road. And then I got a car and things got easier. And then he went into the military for six years and I went to New York. So we've constantly been dealing with this and our relationship. That's why it's unique. And and we have dealt with our battles for it. It was very hard. And a lot of our friends were like, why in the world are you doing this? <laughs> Break up already. Like, just enjoy college. And we didn't. And we just stayed true. And we don't regret an absolute minute of it. It was very difficult. But we really love the work we do. Tyler's a musician. So as being both artists, it really helps because we both understand putting so much of ourselves into our art and then putting a lot like devoting time into our relationship. Those things have to be separated and really, really respected. And if there's no respect for that, then it you can, in my opinion, you can call it done. I would have called it done a long time ago if Tyler didn't respect everything that I wanted to do in my work. So it's been a struggle, but it's very, very worth it. Brilliant. Yeah. It's um, not to air any dirty laundry, but it's funny, my my wife and I got into a little argument uh, this week because she's looking to pursue a, a master's degree in business administration to, you know, elevate herself in her career. Good for and, you her. Know, she's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, in all fairness, like she has always supported me in my pursuit of photography and my passions and just never questioned like, oh, you're doing a podcast? Cool. Oh, you're 
starting this thing. Cool. Oh, you're going on a 10 day trip to Death Valley. All right, cool. You know, she's never, it's always been like, yeah, cool. Go for it. You know? So I think, I think to your point, the, the secret sauce is finding somebody who supports your passions and wants to see you succeed. Right. Yeah, definitely. And maybe is willing to even help you work for it. Cause Tyler has definitely worked a lot of hours on my behalf, starting a business and there has to be that he is full faith in me that one day I will be a millionaire (laughs) and I will be able to buy him all the guitars in the world that he wants. If you're listening, babe, it will happen. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, it might, or it might the other way, you know, maybe he'll become like the next Bon Jovi or something. Yeah. The next rock star. So that's right. Right. We just got to keep supporting each other until it happens. Exactly. And, um, with the long distance, it's all about communication. We don't go a day without talking to each other unless we have no physical like possible way to do it. If gotcha. we can talk to each other, we talk. Very important. That that makes sense, especially yeah. if you're gone for like three months. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, tell us about your next project and how can our listeners support you? Dun, dun, dun. The next project is uh, I am making a documentary with photographer and PhD researcher Taylor Stone, which some of y'all may be familiar with. She is also a landscape photographer, and she's also been on Matt's podcast. So you can go listen to her episode when you're done with this one. And we are going to be going to Greenland. Not my choice of place (laughs) because I am a warm-weathered woman, but she is a fighter in the cold. And she brought a story to my attention two years ago now, taking place in Greenland with the uh, Inuit people up in the north, specifically the subsistence hunters and their fight against climate change and a lot of other nuances to their ways of life changing because of modern times. And she said, hey, like she doesn't make films, but I do. And she thought this was a beautiful story that needed to be told and maybe we should collaborate. And so that is what we are doing. We are going to Greenland and we are making a documentary. She is a co-producer on this project and I'm going to be filming directing and editing it. And then we're also going to have a photo series alongside of it. It's a all-encompassing, really awesome project. It's fiscally sponsored by the Arctic Arts Project. And uh, you can help also by actually sponsoring it. And if you want to even get your name in the credits or get some really cool perks, there is a Kickstarter out right now. So you can go check out it. It is a well, actually, Matt, can you put it in the description of the podcast? Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Perfect. Okay, so y'all can go click that, read more about the documentary, where we're going to be going specifically. We will be there for about two months. We're, we're trying to do two trips in two different weather conditions, and we're going to be living with the villagers, talking to them about their opinions, kind of like what I've talked to y'all about I did in Borneo and in Nepal and Bangladesh, and then we're going to be doing it in Greenland, just a little colder of a place. That's awesome. Yeah, it's um I love this this common thread that you keep weaving in terms of the um the polarization of, you know, the positives and negative impacts of capitalism and modern society on indigenous cultures. I think that has a really compelling story to tell and I'm glad you're I'm glad you're telling it. Thank you. I'm I'm very lucky to be telling it. Thank y'all for keeping me here and allowing me to keep doing it. Awesome. Awesome, Ashley. Well, I have one more question for you. Mm -hmm. 
Who would you recommend our listeners learn more about? Who should we look into or who should we maybe think about having on the podcast? So I went to, like I mentioned, I went to art school. So I've got some people up my sleeve. I would definitely bring on Timothy McClare. He is an incredible photographer and definitely ask him about his thesis because it's very powerful and emotional and he's an incredible guy. And then also Logan Baker is a good one to bring on. He's a friend of a friend and his art is also really magnificent. He's working in film too. So I believe, yeah, and he's doing some really cool stuff. Awesome. Well, Ashley, how can our listeners learn more about you and see the work that you're doing? So my production company is, the name is Tracing Thought, like you're tracing a piece of paper and then a thought in your head. So you can go to tracingthought.com and you can check out all the things. I I write blogs on the films, um, facts of the film to give more information. From there, you can see my YouTube channel where all the films are posted. So you can go watch the ones I've talked about. And on Patreon, if you can also get there through my website, you can get behind the scenes of all of these documentaries and actually see my uh, adoption ceremony. I made a behind the scenes video for my patrons of it. And That's cool. there's a, also a link for the Greenland page on tracingthought.com. So everything is right there if y'all want to go check it out and follow me on Instagram under tracingthought. Awesome, Ashley. Well, this has been a lot of fun and it's, it's uh, we have Taylor to thank for introducing yeah. you to the community here. And, and um, I look forward to, to seeing what you are able to, the stories that you're able to tell. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I'm really excited that even if one person found this podcast interesting, it's going to make me jazzed. So thank you guys so much. Awesome. Well, thanks to Ashley for joining me on today's podcast. I was so inspired by Ashley's goals as a filmmaker that I decided to support her over on Patreon, and I encourage you to do the same thing. I also backed her and Taylor's project on Kickstarter back in February, which had a very incredible launch, but you can still help them realize their goals and help them create meaningful work in Greenland. I put a link to their project in the show notes so that you too can support their cause. This is what this podcast is all about. Thanks to the support from listeners on Patreon, we are able to continue the podcast week after week and bring attention to artists, photographers, filmmakers, and others who are following their passions in photography. I appreciate all of you. F-Stop Collaborate and Listen is an independent, listener-supported production. This value-for-value business model keeps the podcast accountable only to you, the listeners. This business model functions on the honor system, and so if you've found value in this podcast, please contribute to make sure it can continue to inform and entertain you for many years to come. Please consider supporting the podcast. There is a variety of ways that you can do that. All financial contributors get a verbal thank you on the podcast, and if requested, have a short message read on air. You can contribute to the podcast via Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. Just click on the podcast link at mattpainphotography.com. Patreon supporters get special access to bonus materials, early releases, and a lot more. As such, thank you to our most recent supporters, including Allison Carlino, Irene Reedy, Yulia Riddell, and Roger Nadell. 
That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.